So anyway, this is uh, the first in a series of talks. I'm not really sure when it's going to end because it's kind of really just about unpacking the teachings of the Buddha. Um, and it, in what's often called the gradual awakening, or the gradual instruction. And so what I thought I'd do tonight, though, is actually uh, just really talk about the Buddha's life. Because really, the Buddha's life is a teaching. And it's, a, it's an archetypal story. The hero's journey, or the, the heroine's journey. You know, it's not gender-based. It's, it's what I love about uh, the story. Uh, and, you know, I'll kind of break it down a little bit more in, the, in a few minutes. But it, um, it's universal. And actually, you know, the hero's story is, uh, it's our story. It's our journey. And it's often, and it's also found in all all traditions, all spiritual traditions, all creation stories, all uh, kind of religious struggle, moving to you know awakening, enlightenment. I mean, the Buddha's pretty unique in some ways, which is why I've been so drawn to Buddhism. Yeah, so the Buddha's life as a story or as a journey, you know, it's not just about his life, but it's about, it's about our lives as well. It's for all of us. His own path to, our, to awakening and also how we have kind of come to this path of awakening. So how can we see, you know, our own struggles, our own journeys, our own healing within this story? That's what I'm kind of pointing to. So that it's not just like you're hearing a story, although it is, but it's not so much factual. I mean, I can answer questions about the factual Buddha, but, you know, the truth is 2,556 years ago, you know, what we have is... uh, a lot of stories that were retold over and over again and then written down. So really, I like to think of it as not so much factual, but the essence of the story. So as most uh, archetypal stories go, there's a calling. There's a departure. There's a struggle. There's an awakening. And there's a return. This is kind of the format that I'm going to use tonight. It's not the way I actually normally talk about the Buddha's, the Buddha's life. Um, but I heard this format recently and it put in this frame of you know, an archetypal universal story. And so I like it. And I thought it's a good place to start to then open up into all the Buddha's teachings. So the calling. The inspiration. The inspiration for our practice. The inspiration for how we came on this path. That's kind of why I asked you in the beginning, like, what what brings you here? Mindfulness, insight, peace, ease. 
what inspires you to go forth. You know. So, for those of you that don't know, so, so Siddhartha Gautama, which is the Buddha to be, uh, you know, was born in a, you know, a kingdom. There's actually some debate now about whether it was like he was a really fortunate like kingdom. Like, what do you think about like I don't know, Thailand as a kingdom, or I don't even know where their kingdom, England as a kingdom, I guess still. So I mean, there's not a whole lot of kingdoms, but whether it was a, like a really big flourishing kingdom or whether it was actually just a small province that was uh, mostly farmers and you know they had some board, some some other bordering. Um, you know, uh, provinces. So there was some like kind of debate and, and, and structure for land and whatnot. So there was definitely, uh, uh, it was, you know, a, a caste structure. And um, Siddhartha Gautama, born of a king uh, of a certain area in actually north. It's actually what's kind of considered the border of Nepal these days. So kind of uh, central northern India. So as the son of a, of a king, a prince-to-be, you know, he was lavished with all kinds of uh, gifts and uh, training and it's actually said that uh, on his birth, on the Siddhartha Gautama's birth, um, there was a soothsayer or a, a fortune teller that came uh, to the palace, as it was common in the uh, in the time. And and uh, basically, kind of made a proclamation as to what was going to happen with the the son's life. And the way the story goes is um, that the the fortune teller, uh, as he was kind of looking at the baby Siddhartha, began to weep. And then everyone was kind of nervous, you know, like, what, what's up with that? And then the soothsayer kind of composed himself and he said, you know, I'm weeping because, because he was very old. He said, uh, I'm weeping because uh, I won't be able to live, I won't live long enough to see the outcome because the fate of this child is not determined. And what I can see is that uh, this, this child will either become, uh, I got it written down here, the greatest king among humans or a great healer of suffering for the world. But, the, but his fate is undetermined. So the king... And the queen, hearing that, they were pretty like, okay, I'm not really sure what this other kind of great healer of suffering is, but the greatest king among humans, I definitely want my son to become that. (laughs) Right? So because there was a kind of a, you know, there was something hanging in the balance, the way it's talked about is that the... um, you know, the king and the queen, they did everything that they could to, to really um, make the path easy to become king. So every wish was fulfilled. Siddhartha lived in uh, 
palaces, multiple palaces throughout his whole life. He had serfs, you know, servants, mostly female. I'm going to read a little passage of uh, some of his uh, kind of retelling of his life before uh, he became awakened. He had a young wife. He trained as a warrior. He was highly educated in the philosophy of the times. He had had a child named Rahula. Just, just born. Let me just give you a little, a little picture of um, what the Buddha was like, what the Siddhartha's life was like prior to his setting forth or going forth. It says, I lived in refinement, utmost refinement, total refinement. My father even had lotus, lotus ponds made in our palace. One where only red lotuses bloomed. One where white lotuses bloomed. One where blue, where blue lotuses bloomed. All for my sake. I used no sandalwood. That was apparently like, you know, lowly. <laughs> and I used no sandalwood that was uh, not from Varnasi. Varnasi is, uh, especially at that time, was just, and still is, a very booming kind of uh, area and kind of well-to-do. My turbans were also uh, from Varnasi, as was my tunic, my lower garments, and my outer cloak. White uh, a white sunshade was held over me day and night to protect me to protect me from cold heat dust dirt and dew i had three palaces one for the cold season one for the hot season one for the rainy season so like you know cribs <laughs> during the the four months of the rainy season um i was entertained in the rainy season palace by minstrels without without a single man among them. So in other words, concubines or uh, you know, he had lots of servants. He was given everything he wanted. And yet, even though he had this pretty lush life, pretty easy going. There was this calling, this dissatisfaction that he was, uh, he just wasn't aware. You know, he was like he had a, an internal pull to say what's going on in this world. So kind of as the story goes, uh, you know, around 29, he had really not seen the rest of, of the world for 29 years, just been moved from palace to palace and, you know, kind of having people feed him food and he would have sport and his cousins were around and, you know, just kind of had it, had it easy. So what happened is that one day, uh, you know, he got curious and he wanted to see what was, what was going on out in the villages and, you know, in his kingdom that he was going to inherit. He was like, I want to see what's going on here. But his father... Uh, didn't really want him to see the the uh, the vicissitudes of life, the difficulties of life. So he actually sent. So this I'm not sure if this is true or not, but this is the way that the story goes. He sent servants out to sweep the streets and hide all the old people, hide all the sick, hide all the dead or the dying. No funerals that day. 
uh, you know, everything was new and painted and, you know, whatever. It was dressed up, right? And then the, the uh, Siddhartha went out in his chariot and he was like, all right, this is a pretty nice kingdom. You know? But he wasn't satisfied. And he actually snuck out again uh, on another day. And when he snuck out, uh, it's said that he ran into the four heavenly messengers. Right? The first was a, an old person. He saw an old person and he was like, like what is this? Because he had never really seen an old, an old kind of sick and sickly person before. And he was kind of shocked. Again, this is archetypal, you know, because, I mean, really, I mean, I, I was thinking about this myself, like, I don't buy it all, but the essence of it, right? To be shocked by death, by the fact of old age, by the fact of sickness, this is basically what these heavenly messengers are. They're the wake-up call. Whether he had ever seen uh, an old person before or not, I don't know if that's true. But it's clear that in this moment in his life, in his, with his own kind of dissatisfaction with the way things were, no matter how, you know, he had so much pleasure and it wasn't enough. He was bored. Right? So he began to set out. And so he went and he saw an old person and he saw a sick person and he saw a dead person and he was shocked. And he asked his cousin, who was also uh, his charioteer, you know, what is this? You know? and, and his cousin said, you know, we're all, uh, we're all going to age. We're all going to get sick. We're all going to die. This is, this is what's, what happens in this life. And he was kind of shocked by that. So Siddhartha was moved, um, was moved kind of to figure out like what what's up there, like what what else is there? Is there a way out of these uh, these trappings? And then, when he went out on another day, he he saw um, the fourth heavenly messenger, which was a monk, uh, a mendicant, someone who had shaved their head and. Uh, taken robes and set out, also known as a truth seeker. So this is uh, called the calling. And I mean, just to think about what was our own inspiration? What is it that woke us up to our own dissatisfaction to seek meditation or a spiritual book or whatever? The message um, that I really get from this part of the story is there's something not quite right here. There's something not quite right. And once you've awoken to it, it, it's actually easy to go back to sleep. But it will return and it will continue to return throughout our lives. So it might not have been the first time or, you know, and I was actually reflecting uh, when I was thinking about writing this talk. Once the first time that I knew that there was something not quite right, and I, I don't even remember how young I was. Maybe my mom remembers. But one of our friends' daughters drowned. Her name was Sundara. 
And I was like six or seven or something like that. And I just remember, like, and she was my age. And I remember that she drowned. And I remember the place she drowned. And I remember going there and thinking, like, like why does that happen? I was really young. And then even younger than that, I remember um, I fell into a dam. I was kind of hanging out at the edge of a, a dam, kind of looking in the water. And I was like, I don't even know, really, really young. And I fell in. I had no idea how to swim. And I, I still have this memory of like kind of going around in a circle, like trying to kind of paddle or whatever. And really, I remember, I, I actually remember feeling like I, I'm, I might die, like I can't breathe. And then my, my sister had dove in the water and saved my life. I don't even remember how old I was. I was pretty young. So there was some like, you know, kind of tentativeness with life that I, I, rec- I recognized pretty early. That was like some of the, but you know, I didn't really think about it a whole lot, you know. And there, you know, then there's more and more, you know, getting locked up, being arrested, using drugs, seeing violence, this kinds of things. So we all have a calling to like, wow, there's something not quite right here. And what can be done about it? There must be another way. This is kind of what came to me. There must be another way. And part of that word for me, part of that, and you know, the question is, what, what was that for you? And part of that for me was, uh, you know, around 16, I learned meditation. Begrudgingly, from a psychologist friend of mine. And that really started the path. And then later, you know, my, my friend Noah Levine had gotten into meditation and I was kind of drawn to him and what he was doing. So there was, I started to see, oh, there is another way. That just, you know, drugs and uh, buying things and sex and, you know, loud music and violence or whatever I was doing to try to get out of my mind. Out of, out of seeing the difficulty. Um, it wasn't working. So there's this other piece uh, around the calling that is true for me and it's also true for the Buddha. I'm not actually trying to compare myself to the Buddha, but just that this is something that came true for me is that you know at a really early age, I grew up in Boulder Creek, and at a really early age, uh, I would just take off in the mountains by myself. Really young too. I was pretty young, homo. And uh, I would just spend all day in the forest. And there was some, I remember like a couple times, this like maybe eight, nine, just this peace and ease that would come over me, this calmness of just being in the woods. And, and uh, later when I learned meditation, it was like, oh, that's what was happening when I was a kid. I could tap into that. And that kind of actually has helped propel me. I still like to meditate in the forest. So this is the calling. So then there's the departure. So back to the story of Siddhartha Gautama. So he was uh, moved to do something. You know, and then there's this other kind of level of the archetypal story is that um, he was not just compelled by his own 
kind of selfish desire to want to find the end of suffering for himself or the end of dissatisfaction for himself. But there was some other deeper uh, longing, which is maybe what this soothsayer, this fortune teller was kind of pointing to. So the departure, you know, he made this decision that he was going to seek, he was going to leave the palace. And that also meant leaving his wife, leaving being a king, leaving his newborn son. And that was, uh, you know, what I've come to read more recently, that actually uh, almost stopped him. But it didn't. And he actually had a conversation with his wife. His son had just been born. He had a conversation with his wife um, really just kind of saying like, you know, I feel compelled to do this. And then his wife, although was angry and sad, agreed. And then, and then he, he left. The, his, uh, his father, his mother, they, they were not happy. They didn't want him to. But his wife kind of really seeing clearly like this is something that he's compelled to do. Let me just read this other, it's another um, quote from the Buddha. As the Buddha is recalling his own life. When I was still young, black-haired, endowed with the blessings of youth, in the first stage of life, I shaved off my hair and beard, though my parents wished otherwise, and were grieving with tears on their faces. And I put on the ochre, the ochre robes and went forth from the home life into homelessness. So this is, uh, even though it was really hard, there was, what, what, I'm, what I was getting in this uh, story that I was reading most recently is the, the conflict to stay in that which is familiar, predictable, safe, and painful, which we all do. You know, have this struggle within us. As you maybe come to find that maybe tonight's your first night or you've come practice a lot or you've been on retreats or you've been in and out of, of this meditation practice or whatever spiritual practice. right? That to really kind of commit yourselves to, to change in the heart and mind is a struggle. And sometimes we go back and forth. So, uh, you know, for me, I was thinking about uh, retreats or travel. I remember the first time I was going to get on a plane and go a really, really far unknown place that I'd never been to before, knew nothing about. I went to uh, Southeast Asia the first time. And I was terrified. I'd never been out of the country. There was, but there was something like, there was something, some, there was some, pull, there was some adventure in it that I was excited about. But there also the unknown was terrifying. And I thought I was going to die. I totally thought I was going to die. And I remember making a deal with whatever. That if I died, let me die on the way back. <laughs> it was actually, it was the fear of flying 21 hours in a plane. It wasn't actually anything else. It was, it was the fear of that long travel over the ocean. I had this doubt feeling of the plane going down in the middle of the ocean. 
You know, that was my fear. That was my rational, irrational, whatever. The doubt. The don't do it. But I went. And there was, but there was some difficulty in that departing. And we all have to do that, right? Disconnect from what's familiar, predictable, safe, and painful. We have to do that in our daily lives. We want to make change. We want to create something different. Whether it's uh, you know, our weekly or daily meditation, like coming here once a week or sitting every day. You know, for me, I also wrote like traveling to India or going to a monastery or going on a meditation retreat for three days or five days. There is conflict that arises. Many people here have talked about it. So what's your shift from the known to the unknown? How is it that you're looking at familiar, predictable, safe, and painful and doing something different? Maybe, you know, just ask yourself that. Maybe it's showing up here. Maybe it's reading a book. Maybe it's uh, cutting somebody out of your life. Letting someone in your life. Opening your heart. Whatever. This is the, uh, the departure. The struggle. So Siddhartha set out from this lav- lavish life and went to the other extreme. of Living in the woods, you know, eating one to nothing a day. One meal to nothing a day. Practicing yoga, concentration meditation, uh, you know, really ascetic practices, standing on one foot for like days at a time, you know, not laying down. There's all these crazy ascetic practices that were really um, common in the time of the Buddha. That, he, that the Buddha explored. And what happened is that in the deep levels of concentration, what's called jhana practice, he actually surpassed his teachers pretty quickly. And then his teachers would say, you know what? He would ask, "Is there anything else you can teach me?" And his teachers would say, "No, actually, you've surpassed me. Why don't you come and teach with me?" And and, and the Buddha wasn't the Buddha to be. Siddhartha wasn't satisfied with that because he he could tell that there wasn't you know he wasn't completely free. There was still clinging. There was still attachment. He still didn't understand these questions. So he would keep going. And eventually, after a few teachers and trying really deep concentration practices and realizing that, yeah, there's some power of mind that that's kind of helped. But it wasn't the answer. It wasn't, it, it wasn't uh, a full awakening. Or yogic practice to such an extreme that he actually uh, the, he, he had, could kind of totally disconnect from the body. The body, he could see that the body wasn't, wasn't him. He wasn't the body. But it didn't actually lead to the freedom from suffering. It just helped. So he kept going. So he struggled a lot. But he didn't find the answers to his questions. 
So he remembered uh, at one point, you know, he was, the, the story goes he was eating one piece of rice a day and sitting constantly in meditation and just was like, you know, almost dead. There's all these, there's all these stories of, you know, that the, his, his bones were um, so brittle and his, he had no skin left. I mean, no uh, muscle left, just skin, just sinews holding his bones together. And I actually was uh, in the cave that he sat at, that he sat in, when I went, it was in, in Bodhgaya, India. Um, and I walked there, which was a journey. Um, it was good, though. I was glad I walked. But I walked there up into this cave, and then there's this, there's this statue of this emaciated Buddha. And at one point, uh, you know, he just kind of come, came to this realization, like, this, maybe this isn't the way either, as he was on his own, practicing to such extreme. Then he remembered a time when he was a child, around seven or eight years old, and his father was uh, doing this kind of plowing ceremony. He remembered a time sitting under this rose apple tree, and about eight, you know, seven, eight, nine years old, and becoming uh, just fa- naturally falling into this deep and peaceful awareness which is now kind of translated as the peace and ease that is the natural resting place of the mind. One of the instructions I gave you this evening, which is real. It's possible. So having that memory, that instinct, then he, he realized, okay, maybe it's not this extreme asceticism, but maybe there's a middle way. And so he began to take a little rice, a little milk, eat once a day to gain enough strength. And then uh, the way that the story goes is that he um, then left the cave and walked this, I don't know if it's the exact same, but the same path that I walked to Bodhgaya. And he sat underneath uh, the tree, the Bodhi tree, which I posted a picture of on uh, my Facebook or on the Rebel Dharma or something uh, of me underneath that tree. Not, not like meditating, but I was just, yeah, it was just under the tree. Anyway. Um, <laughs> I had some cool experiences there, but we're not going to get into that now. So this is the struggle that he went through. Seven, eight years of, of ardent practice. And then he, re- he recognized, oh, you know, there's this middle way. So uh, the other part of the struggle is when he made this clear determination to sit under that tree. And he actually made a clear uh, decision to himself and you know, to the world. He just, you know, the way that uh, it's described is, is uh, taking the final seat. And in taking the final seat, uh, he sat and said, you know, I will not move from this spot until I've reached uh, complete liberation from suffering. And the way that the story goes is that uh, Mara, the tempter, the evil one is kind of called, the lord of death, is, these are all the ways it's described. Which really, from a psychological perspective, Mara is our id, from the Freudian perspective. Our uh, kind of greed, hatred, and ignorance. 
the habits of mind, the torments of mind that kind of keep us suffering. That we all get tempted by. Every one of us. It comes out in different ways. I talk a lot about that and I'll talk more about it. But the idea is that uh, Mara uh, really unleashed all of the uh, all of his armies. Desire. You know, uh, in, in, in the Buddhist mind, all the all of the uh, most beautiful women and the most beautiful foods and all of the temptations of, of uh, sense pleasures became apparent to him. And he stayed ardent, alert, clear that 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 the the path of kind of uh, gratification doesn't actually lead anywhere to uh, or other than uh, you know more desire. It doesn't actually fulfill anything. As a matter of fact, oftentimes if you have ever experienced addiction, it just makes you empty. So he was clear about that. And so then uh, aggression and or aversion came up in uh, the Buddha's mind. The attack. And uh, what what the Buddha did in response to uh, hatred or aggression, and I think about this in, in terms of our own minds, the way that we beat ourselves up all the time. Loving kindness, compassion. The Buddha saw really clearly in his own heart, in his own mind. It's not helpful to beat ourselves up. So he began to, you know, uh, develop these uh, phrases: right? loving kindness and compassion. And the way that it's described, uh, you know, the the myth of it is that you know the armies of Mara were throwing their spears and stones at the Buddha and uh, the Buddha's uh, with kind of an aura of compassion all, all of the uh, weapons turned to lotus blossoms and fell to the Buddha's feet kind of disarming hatred by with using love and compassion so the in the final stand Mara uh, doubt arose. Mara unleashed doubt and actually just directly confronted the Buddha, appeared, right, supposedly. Whether that's, you know, I mean, how many times has Mara appeared in your own mind, right? Mara appeared and said, what gives you the right? Who do you think you are? Wanting to become awakened, wanting to become free from suffering. You're nothing. You mean nothing. All the things you've done for the last seven years are worthless. You're worthless. This is, you know, doubt. What gives you the right? And the way the story goes, and this is what's depicted here. This is a very common uh, uh, mudra, or a very common kind of picture of the Buddha. This is the earth-touching gesture. Where the, what the Buddha said is, and actually this is um, one of the ways I really think about it now, is uh, 
That really, if you think about being attacked by your own mind and doubt in such a way that you dissociate, that you're not connected to your body. So what did the Buddha do? He reached out and touched the ground and became grounded in his body and in the earth and said really clearly, like I see you. idea that was going to happen but the good thing about it is that um, I'm glad that that happens because if we're not grounded in like this this and I think what what just came up for me is that it's the present time awareness that came up right then in the Buddha and it just what happened And what does happen is that when we can stay in the present moment, this is the Buddha's kind of final awakening, is that this present time awareness really allows all of the bullshit in our minds to disappear. That it just becomes the bullshit in our minds and nothing else. There's something deeper, bigger, more real than our thoughts and our feelings. So then the final aspect of, of, uh, of this struggle and the awakening is that uh, in the story, and this is that, uh, particularly the Thai version, uh, is that the earth goddess uh, arises to bear witness. And, uh, and, and then in the Thai story, which I found actually uh, pretty interesting because um, Thais are pretty patriarchal actually. And so, but to hear uh, that there's this earth goddess that arises, and uh, the idea is that uh, all of the generosity for lifetimes that the Buddha had had given uh, of himself and of the uh, of you know his own life from lifetime after lifetime was kind of stored up, and the 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 earth goddess uh, had a, a kind of a water in her hair and kind of wrung out her hair, and then uh, the water kind of rose and you know knocked away all of the uh, all of the aspects of the Mara's uh, attack which is kind of what I was saying about feeling grounded in our experience and then these these uh, beliefs just kind of vanish it may not seem that way for you but it really happens so this is the awakening so then, the way the story goes, and I need to finish up a little bit. I'm almost done. So each moment of our own awakening, each moment that we can wake up to what's happening in our heart and our mind, see the temptations of Mara. Those are moments of awakening. Uh, one of the teachers that I know calls, uh, well, he's no longer alive, but Buddha Dasa Bhikkhu uh, called them uh, little nibbanas, little awakenings, little moments of uh, 
clarity. And that another teacher um, said, small moments many times. This is Nibbana. Small moments many times. So as we have these moments of awakening which kind of propels us on this journey. So after the awakening, the Buddha actually sat. You know, he became fully enlightened. I'll explain what that is on, in my opinion uh, on another day. But basically seeing things as they are. Unmasked. Just raw knowing. And that as he was um, kind of basking in the glow of full awareness and release from suffering, it arose in his mind uh, that people won't understand. People won't get it. It's too hard. It's too difficult. There's too much greed, hatred, and delusion in the world. Too much dust in the eyes of the culture at that time. Too much uh, lust or desire for greed. Too much uh, uh, connection to hatred. Too much ignorance or not seeing clearly. Then, you know, there's the, a couple different ways that it's talked about, but maybe this higher aspect of his mind pleaded him, or devas, angels, spoke to him. Either way. And he began to see with, you know, clarity. There are few that will have less dust in their eyes. And there's this, this I'll end with this final story because this is my favorite story. Um, that he looked to the side uh, and, and there was a pond. He was sitting under a tree by a pond and he saw this, this lotus blossom pulled up out of the water, fully bloomed. And in his you know, enlightened understanding, he saw that we're like that lotus blossom. We human beings are like that lotus blossom and that we all have this seed that's deep down in the darkness in the mud, in the muck. Because lotus blossoms, beautiful flowers, bloom out of stagnant, dark, gross-looking water. (laughs) True. And uh, so out of the marshes, right? So he saw this this lotus blossom and, and and he recognized that we all have this seed and that some won't ever break the surface. And some will continue to grow towards the light. And that the thing about a lotus blossom is it can't bloom unless it breaks the surface of the water. That's what's beautiful about the lotus blossom. And it's actually why the lotus blossom is uh, considered a symbol of awakening, of enlightenment. So because of that, and because of seeing, okay, there are some, there will, there'll be few in every generation that can hear the Dharma, hear the truth. He set out. And he began to teach. And then he started the wheel of the Dharma in motion, which I'll talk about next week. The Four Noble Truths. 
out of compassion for the suffering of all beings is why the Buddha decided to teach. This, that conditionality is what is the way it's talked about. This, that conditionality. Because of this, because of the Buddha's uh, inspiration, because of the Buddha's uh, need or com- being compelled to find the truth of old age, suffering, and death. Generation after generation after generation, for 2,556 years, there has been this kind of teaching. And just uh, to end on a happy note, well, that's a pretty happy note, but uh, later, you know, seven, eight years after um, after the Buddha became awakened and he developed the monastic order, his wife joined him and became a nun. His son joined him and uh, the Buddha taught his son, Rahula. And there's lots of teachings actually in the suttas, in the, you know, in, in, in the teachings, uh, the texts of the Buddha kind of having conversations with his son at you know, seven, eight, nine years old. And then Rahula became fully awakened, and I believe his his wife did too. So, uh, you know, what, one time I was in this group, and I said um, the Buddha was a deadbeat dad, because in some ways that's true, right? <laughs> but there's more to the story. Yeah. All right, let's just sit quietly for a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.